Church, if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 2. We're continuing our study through the book of Revelation, now in the second chapter. As you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a question. If Jesus were to come to New Branch, if, if he were to come down here and walk among us, both individually and in our individual lives and families and homes and lives, but also corporately in our church, what would he say about us? How would he evaluate us and our church? And in particular this morning, what would he say about our love, our love for him, our love for one another, and our love for those who are far from God. How would Jesus evaluate us? Well, Jesus did this for seven churches in John's day. And in this part of the vision, he gives them an evaluation. And he tells John to write this evaluation down in a letter to be given to these churches. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at each one of these letters, one by one, not only to see what Jesus said to them, but to see what Jesus perhaps might say to us as well. So If you've got your Bibles, follow along as I read from Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to gather with one another in your house and extol you and exalt you and remember the sacrifice of your son through the Lord's Supper and to sing of your majesty. We turn now to this precious book that we hold in our hands, your breath to us, your word 
to us. And we ask, Father, that you would speak to us from it, that you would give us understanding, but not just so that we would have a better comprehension of what it means, but, Father, so that the intent behind it might bear fruit in our lives, so that we might be conformed just a bit more out of this passage to the image of Jesus so that you might be glorified in us and so that you might be glorified through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since we're at the outset of this portion of the study of Revelation, as we look at each of these seven letters, I want to give kind of a general outline because all of these letters follow the same basic format. There are three main portions. There's an opening, a body, and a closing. But, but each of those elements have a, a lot of similarity from letter to letter. And we'll see this each week as we look at the letters that Jesus instructed John to write to these churches. In the opening remarks, there are typically two elements that they all share. First of all, there is the, identi- the identification of the audience he always says to the church, to the angel of the church at Ephesus or at Smyrna or at Thyatira or whatever it is. And so he identifies the audience, but there also includes a characterization of Jesus. Here he says, to the, uh, these are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. With each of these letters, there is imagery that's borrowed from the vision of Jesus that we saw in chapter 1. And and, and they seem to be tailor-fitted to each church. And so we'll look at that each week and see how Jesus introduces himself and how that introduction itself tells us something for these churches. In the body of the letter, which by far with each of these is the largest portion of the letter, we're going to see things that Jesus commends about these churches as well as things that he accuses them of. And it includes a commendation as well as an accusation of some sort of weakness of each church. And then there's an exhortation of what he wants them to do because there is this weakness in their church. And then he also includes a warning if they don't. In the closing remarks, there's also always two elements there. First of all, an instruction to take the exhortation seriously. With each one of these letters, he closes with, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, don't ignore this. Listen to this. Take heed to this. And then he also gives an encouragement, a, a promise to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who heeds this encouragement and applies this to their lives. And so that's kind of the general format that each of these letters will follow, and we'll see that in each of the subsequent weeks as we look at these various letters. So let's look at it here with respect to Ephesus. First of all, the opening remarks we find in verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so again, this is Jesus speaking. He's instructing John to write this letter and to write it specifically to the angel that corresponds to the church 
in Ephesus with the intent that it would be read to the church in Ephesus itself. So what do we know about Ephesus? What do we know about the culture surrounding this church that's in this town? Well, Ephesus was the largest of all these cities that are listed in chapters 2 and 3. It was the Roman provincial capital of Asia Minor. Uh, The population was like a quarter of a million, like 250,000 people, which by that day's standards was a huge metropolis. And so it was an urban center. It was a port city on the Aegean Sea. And so as a result of that, there was a lot of trade, there was a lot of business, and there was a lot of money. It was a wealthy town. But unfortunately, it also had a lot of immorality that sometimes wealth seems to attract. In this city, we find the great temple of the goddess Artemis. It was the Roman goddess of fertility, and it was right there in town. This building, um, by that day's standards, was the largest building. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, a huge, huge temple. And it was filled with literally thousands of priests and priestesses, most of whom were temple prostitutes. The Roman imperial cult was also very active in the city of Ephesus. In this city, there was a 25-foot-tall statue to the, uh, the, to the Roman emperor who was ruling at this time, uh, Domitian. And uh, the Roman citizens were required to worship and pay homage to Domitian. And so the church in Ephesus would have faced tremendous pressure to participate in the worship of the emperor and to participate in some of the immorality that was taking place at the temple of Artemis. Such was the culture that surrounded the church in Ephesus. And as we think about the culture of Ephesus, I think we can see that there are some stark similarities to the culture in which we find ourselves today in 21st century America. Again, it was a wealthy culture. Wealth, of course, is relative, but just as the city of Ephesus was quite a bit more wealthy and more money in that city than any of the other cities in Asia Minor, so our country is much wealthier than most of the world today. And in particular, this area of Georgia, Decula, Hamilton Mill, as we know, is a wealthy area of our state. So there's lots of wealth in this area of our state. It was a center, as we said, of trade and business. And compared with other parts of the country, uh, Georgia is doing well. There's lots of businesses that are growing. Construction of homes is is behind the, the, the need for homes. The unemployment rate here in Georgia is much lower than the rest of the country. The economy seems to be recovering more quickly, and so there's a lot of similarity there with the culture of Ephesus. But most importantly, there were a lot of competing worldviews there in Ephesus, as there are vying for our attention today. But regrettably, not only are these worldviews of our culture vying for our attention, but they have infiltrated even public life even our schools, and indoctrinating our children. 
It's incredible. Things that we never imagined could be called into question are being called into question. Things like what constitutes marriage even. Gender identity and gender confusion, even the abortion of babies in the womb up to the very moment of birth. These are things that our culture is accepting outright. Not to mention the the pervasiveness of a pluralistic and humanistic mindset that not only denies the existence of God, but denies the very existence of objective and absolute truth. And seeks to cancel those and, and silence and cancel those who do believe in those things. So the culture in which we live today shares many characteristics with the culture that surrounded the church at Ephesus. And so we should pay close attention to what Jesus has to say to this church because perhaps he has the same thing to say to us today. Before we move on from these opening remarks, as we said, each of these letters in the greeting includes a characterization of Jesus that seems to be tailor-fit to that church And so to the Ephesians, Jesus says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, the picture of Jesus holding the seven stars, which he told us in chapter one, refers to the angels that correspond to the seven churches, reminds us that Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and that he has the authority to command the angels to do his bidding. And so it reflected his authority and his sovereignty. But the picture here of Jesus walking amidst, walking among the churches, the seven golden lampstands, which stands for the seven churches, is a reminder of the presence of Jesus in the midst of the churches. Now, to the church that was faithful, this would be a great encouragement. But to the church that was unfaithful, to the, churches, to the church that Jesus had to rebuke, this would be a reminder that the boss is watching. The boss is among you. He's watching you, and he sees your unfaithfulness and your rebellion. And I have no doubt that this is part of how the Ephesian church would have taken this picture of Jesus walking among the churches Because although there is much in this church for which Jesus commends them, he also has for them one of his harshest rebukes of all the churches. So that's the opening remarks. Now let's move on to the body of the letter. In the body of of the letter, we see Jesus' commendation of the church, and then we see his accusation to the church, followed by his exhortation and a warning to them. So first, in verses 2 through 3, we see what Jesus commends about these believers. What does he commend about the church in Ephesus? Verses 2 through 3, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus commends the Ephesian church for three broad things. First of all, he commends them for their works. This word literally means their deeds, the things that they were doing, their actions. Now we aren't told the specifics about what these deeds are, just that Jesus commends them for these works. 
But, but he seems to draw emphasis here not just to what the works are, but to how they worked. He says, I commend you for your toil, which means your, your hard work. They were, work. they were hard workers here in Ephesus in the church. Whatever these works were, they worked at them tirelessly and relentlessly. These were not lazy Christians. They got stuff done. They worked hard. They worked tireless. They were active and commendable for how hard they worked. They were also commended here for their patient endurance. So in their deeds, they, they endured patiently. Maybe this is because as a result of their works, they suffered they, they suffered as a result of their deeds, but they endured that suffering patiently, not complaining, not, not griping that it was too hard, but in t- patiently enduring it, trusting that God would both help them, help them and reward them for having endured this suffering and taking it head on. In verse 3, Jesus says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. This seems to indicate that they were facing persecution that we know was prevalent in this area of the world during this time. Either from the Jews or from the Romans themselves or from both. Because they endured patiently, as Jesus says, for my name's sake. In other words, because of me. Because you bear my name. And so this is persecution. They're enduring it patiently. They're bearing up underneath it. And they're not growing weary in continuing their work despite the suffering and despite the persecution. And Jesus commends them for this. Good job, church at Ephesus. You're doing well at this. I commend you for this. Secondly, Jesus also commends the church in Ephesus for how they responded to evil. Jesus writes, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil. This calls to mind the the temple prostitutes and the sexual immorality that was prevalent in this port city. In addition to the pagan practices all through town, there was evil in that city. And there was apparently a temptation for the church to bear with them. In other words, to, to overlook that evil to not see it as that big of a deal, and perhaps to begin to flirt with worldliness. But Jesus commends the Ephesian for not bearing with them, not bearing with it, not overlooking it, and not flirting with worldliness. And then thirdly, they were also commended for how they responded to false teaching. He says, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The word apostle here simply means the sent ones, the the delegates who were sent from outside the church are coming into the church at Ephesus and they're bringing with them false teachings. Later in verse 6, Jesus specifically commends them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, which I also hate. And we don't know the specific false teaching of the Nicolaitans, but, but in Pergamum, they are tied to uh, the, the prophet Balaam and his false teaching. And then in the city of Thyatira, some scholars tie them to the prophetess Jezebel and her teaching about sexual immorality. 
And so the Ephesian Christians here, they, they, they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, the false teachings of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, I hate those works too. I hate that false teaching as well. And so these Ephesian Christians didn't just listen. They, they tested what they heard from these teachers, and they identified it as false. Jesus was commending them for their commitment to root out heresy and false teaching. So the Ephesian church was known for its doctrinal purity, its commitment to theological precision and accuracy. And this is something that Jesus says was good. He commends them for this because this this is important, which tells us that doctrinal impurity is not good. And and theological inaccuracy is not healthy for the church. We'll get to what Jesus holds against them in just a moment. But it's not doctrinal positions. They were committed to getting that right and, and making sure that those who brought false teaching into the church were both identified and booted out. And they're commended for this. Now, I think it bears saying at this point that we can't treat all doctrine the same. What, what is false teaching? We don't know the specific teaching that they identified as false teaching, but because of how they responded to it, the seriousness with which they handled it, it wasn't a minor point of doctrine. When we're talking about labeling something as false teaching, we need to implement a fair amount of what we might call theological triage. That not everything, not every point of doctrine holds the same level of importance. The charge of heresy, which is what the charge of false teaching is, should be reserved for those who deny the fundamental, any of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, the deity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the sovereignty and immutability of God, the inerrancy and the fact that sinners can only be saved by grace through faith in a crucified and resurrected Christ. These are the things that are fundamental to our faith. They're they're fundamental to our salvation. These are the things that are of primary importance. And those that would deny any of these, those that would teach against any of these things, should be labeled as a false teacher. But there are other things that are not primary but secondary There are things that are not necessary for salvation, but they are things that those who gather together in a local faith family hold together in unity. These might be things like what we believe about baptism. Here at New Branch, we we affirm a believer's baptism, that the kind of baptism that we're called to in the New Testament is after one professes publicly faith in Jesus Christ, not before, not when they're a child, not when they're a baby. And that the mode of that is immersion, to to actually go under the water, not sprinkled. This is what we affirm together as a church. This might include things like the role of men and women in the church, 
or perhaps even the degree to which God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Those who disagree on matters of secondary importance, we're not saying at all that they're not believers, and those who teach differently than we teach about that, we're not saying that they are false teachers. But it might mean that they're more comfortable in a church that affirms their opinion of these secondary matters. And then thirdly, there are doctrinal matters that are not primary. They're not even secondary. They're, they're tertiary. They're, they, these are things where genuine believers who are members of the same faith family can disagree on and have healthy and robust discussions about, but over which we will not divide. And these might include things like we're learning in this book. Revelation and eschatology and how things end in the end. But I would submit to you that the charge of false teaching, as was brought by these, these Christians in Ephesus against these folks who were coming in from the outside, should be reserved for those who deny things of primary doctrine, not secondary or tertiary. So the guy who denies the deity of Christ or the inerrancy of Scripture, or who denies salvation by grace alone through faith alone, he who is teaching that is a false teacher, but not the guy who teaches a different view of Revelation. Does it make sense? The point here is that labeling false teaching, identifying false teaching, and keeping that out of the church is critical to the health of the church. It's something for which the Ephesian church was commended by Jesus. And so this is something that we should take seriously as well. So Jesus commends them for three things. First of all, their works. They worked hard, they persevered, and they didn't grow weary in their work. Secondly, their commitment to moral purity and keeping evil out. And thirdly, their commitment to doctrinal purity and keeping false teaching out. They're commended for these things. Jesus says, good job in these areas, but I have this against you. So three commendations, but now one overarching and very serious accusation. And we find in verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus says, I have this against you. This is very Strong accusatory language here. I'm holding this against you. The tone of the letter turns on a dime at this point. I have this against you. I commend you for these things, but you are not doing well here. And I'm holding this against you. What is it? You've abandoned the love you had at first. Not that you've abandoned your first love so much as you've abandoned the love. The grammar here in the Greek is you've abandoned the love that you had at the very first, at the, at the very beginning. You abandoned that love. The love that characterized you when you first came to faith in Christ. The love that you had, Ephesian church, in that first generation after the, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You've lost that. The love that you have back then, you've abandoned it. Your, your heart has changed. You've grown cold. You don't love like you used to. And Jesus says, I hold that against you. 
I hold that against you. Now, we're not told the object of the love here. And so it's safest to assume that Jesus is referring here to, to love in general. Our love of God, our love of one another, our love of those who are far from God. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love God. A lawyer asked Jesus during his earthly ministry what the greatest commandment was. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then he said, the second greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, on those two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Take all of the law in the Old Testament. Take all of the prophets in the Old Testament. There's not much left. He says, you summarize all of that through this. Love God and love one another. The Ephesian church had invested themselves heavily in working hard and impatiently enduring and toiling hard and in pursuing moral and doctrinal purity, things for which they are commended. But somewhere along the way, they had stopped growing in their love. Perhaps even some of their toil and work, for which they were commended, had become more of a chore for them, and they weren't doing those things any longer out of love. Perhaps they were doing them out of obligation or performance or whatever the case might be, but it wasn't out of love. Maybe their pursuit of moral purity had gone sour to where now they were not just hating the sin, but they were hating the sinner as well. And perhaps their commitment to rooting out doctrinal impurity for which they were commended. Somewhere along the way, that coupled with their flesh caused them to be more concerned about knowing about God than truly knowing and loving God. Whatever way it was manifested in them, Jesus charges that church with with having abandoned the love that they had at first. Listen to how Steve Lawson describes the church at Ephesus. He says, the church in Ephesus was a great church. They believed correctly, they served exhaustively, they defended valiantly, but something over time was missing, and that which was missing is that they had left their first love. They had not left it in total, for such is impossible, for nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. But they had left it in part. Once on fire for Christ, their blazing passion had cooled off to a flickering. They were still coming, they were still serving, they were still believing rightly, but their hearts were no longer an altar upon which the fire of Christ was burning brightly. Their activities for Christ had begun to suppress their intimacy with Christ. And rather than it being a relationship, their Christianity had become a performance They had full hearts, they had full heads and busy feet, but they had cold hearts 
The glow of their love was gone. What about you? Have you lost the love that you had at first? Does your heart still overflow with excitement and joy and delight at the thought of your relationship with God? Does your heart still melt at the consideration of the cross and the demonstration of love from Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, when he gave his life for you? Or has your heart grown cold? What about your love for people? People both inside the church and outside the church. Do you find your actions being motivated more by a love for people, a genuine love and compassion for people? Or out of a love for self, a love for comfort, a love for for security and privacy and career advancement and materialism or whatever else you fill in the blank? Has your love for people grown cold? To whatever degree those things are true of us is the degree to which we have abandoned the love that we had first. And Jesus holds that against us, both individually and corporately as a church. This is the accusation that Jesus levies against the church in Ephesus. And I just wonder, we ought to all wonder that if Jesus were to walk among us and see our lives, would this be the accusation he levels against us individually and corporately as a church? Thankfully, he not only accuses the Ephesians, but he exhorts them. He tells them what to do because of their having left their first love. He gives them a threefold commandment as a remedy for this lost love in verse 5. Look at the first half of verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and return. First, remember from where you've fallen. Recognize that you've fallen, that your heart for God and your heart for people isn't what it used to be. It's grown cold. Recognize that you don't love God or people like you used to and see this as you having fallen. This is where we own what we've allowed to happen in our hearts. We've allowed our hearts to grow cold, whether it's towards God or people, inside or outside the church. This is where we remember how we used to be so excited about our walk with Jesus and how we loved him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we've fallen from that place, and we don't anymore. This is where we see that we've allowed other priorities to crowd out both a love for God and a love for one another, where we're no longer motivated by love like we once were. Remember from where you've fallen and then repent. We know that to repent simply means to turn, 
to stop traveling in this direction and turn around and travel in the other direction. And Jesus tells the church in Ephesus to turn around from having fallen from the love that they had at first, to repent of having a cold heart, a divided heart, and a small heart. You see, when we remember from where we have fallen, we repent of that. We recognize that. We see that. And then we turn away from that. We admit it's wrong and we turn away from it in faith. And then thirdly, we return and do the works that you did at first. Do the things that demonstrated your previous fervency of heart and your fervent love for God and people. We should note here that all three of these are aspects of biblical repentance, really. To remember is to realize your need for change. To repent is to turn away from that sin and that lack of love. And then to return and do the things in keeping with your change of heart and repentance. And all three of these that Jesus gives here are imperative verb forms. They are all commandments. And Jesus commands the church at Ephesus, and to whatever degree this describes us, he commands us, remember. Remember where you've fallen from. Repent of that. And do the things that you did at first. And then he gives a warning, a stern warning, for those who refuse to obey this command to repent of having a cold heart. At the end of verse 5, he says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says, I will come to you. I'm I'm going to come to you. Now, scholars are split on whether he's referring to the second coming of Christ here, referring to the judgment that these Ephesian believers will receive at the end, or whether he's talking about some kind of present judgment, that Jesus somehow will visit this church figuratively and bring judgment on them in the now. I think it's both. I think it's both of these things. This is a warning. It's not a promise. And it's not a threat. It's a warning. The warning of both present judgment as well as a warning of future judgment. And what is that judgment? That he would come and remove their lampstand from its place. And we were told by Jesus in chapter 1 that, that the lampstand refers to the church itself. It's witness to a world. It's ability to to project the gospel light to a dark dark world. So Jesus says, if you don't repent and return to the love that you had at first, I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your church. I will take away its witness. And I will remove its ability to project gospel light to a dark, dark world. This is a terrible, terrible, awful judgment to a church. And it's reserved for a church that has not only lost the love that it had its first, but it refuses to repent and return to it. Church, may that never describe this church. Let us keep our heart. Let us fan into flame our love for God and for one another. And for those who are far from God. And when we see that our heart has grown cold, let us remember from where we have fallen. Let us turn from that. 
Let us repent of that cold heart and do the things that we did at first. And may God keep the light of the gospel shining brightly in this place so that we might be able to continue to project that gospel light to the dark world around us until he returns. In closing, let's look at Jesus' closing of this letter in verse 7. As we said at the beginning, these closings in these letters include both an instruction to take the exhortation seriously as well as a promise to the one who conquers. He says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, don't take this lightly. Don't ignore this exhortation. Heed this warning and return to the love that you had at first. But he says here, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so these letters here in the book of Revelation are not simply instruction to these individual churches in Asia Minor, but they are instructions to all churches of all times, including an instruction to us today. We ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Jesus closes the letter with, to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All of these letters that we find in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are trying to encourage the reader to be a conqueror, to be an overcomer, one who doesn't grow weary in the face of suffering and trial, one who doesn't quit or give up, even in the face of persecution as they were enduring, but one who overcomes, that is, one who obeys and heeds the warnings of these instructions. To him, Jesus says here, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We recall the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were instructed, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they could eat from the tree of life. And when they ate from the tree of life, it granted unto them eternal life. That's what eating of the fruit of the tree of life does. It it grants eternal life. But when they disobeyed God and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were ejected out of the garden. And we're told at the end of Genesis 3 that the Lord put an angel at the entrance to the garden to guard them from having entered back in so that they might not eat from the tree of life and live forever. Such was the consequence of sin. But God in his divine wisdom, he purposed to make a way for sinners like us to once again eat from the tree of life. He did this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life of righteousness that we never could, and then to die in our place on another tree, the tree of Calvary, the cross of crucifixion. Jesus died in our place and rose from the dead three days later, proving that he had defeated forever the power of sin and death over those who would place their faith in Christ alone. Now those who trust in Christ for salvation from the punishment that we all deserve, as Paul would later say in Romans 8, 
are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And by grace, through faith in Jesus, we will one day again eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us as we seek to consider the degree to which we have abandoned the love that we had at the first. Father, may your spirit have the freedom to roam in our hearts and root out idols and root out the things that we've given our love to other than you. God, would you make our love for you grow? Would you draw our affections away from the things of this world and draw our affections unto you to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And Father, would you grow our love for one another, both inside the church as we seek to love one another, brothers and sisters in the faith, Encourage one another and challenge one another and serve one another. Minister grace to one another. But also as we seek to grow in our love for those outside the church, those outside the faith. Those who apart from Christ have no hope of eating from the tree of life. Father, help us to love them and serve them. And most pointedly, to love them by bringing this good news to them so that they might see that their only hope of eating from that tree, their only hope of rescue from judgment is to trust in Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection three days later. Father, we're thankful that as we endure times of trial and suffering and even growing persecution aimed at us from the culture around us, You have given us encouragement in your book that we need to grow in our works to patiently endure and to not grow weary in those works. We need to take seriously moral purity as the world around us is decaying in impurity and evil. We need to take seriously doctrinal purity and to ensure that no false teaching makes its way into the church. But Father, we can do all of that And still have you holding something against us if we are not growing in love. And so, Father, grow our hearts for you. To love you more and to love your people more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.